We'll just wait for Jeff to finish talking. The Lord will wait on Jeff. <laughs> it's, it's merely God's word, Jeff, that we're speaking. Thanks for letting him speak. Uh, the message today that John Weathersby was giving is out of Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they, that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, one another Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they had laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Thank you, John. So we are in the final final weeks of the book of Mark. Feels kind of strange. I've become pretty acquainted with this book now. Hopefully you have too. Um, I've been watching this show called Community quite a bit. Uh, now when I fly, every episode of Community is about 20 minutes. So now when I fly, I load up Netflix with like, four or five episodes of Community. And uh, I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with it, but I, it's a great show. It's right up there with The Office, maybe a little better. And um, there, was, there was an episode that I saw recently where um, the, uh, the teacher is, she's, she's teaching. And it's funny because at some point during her teaching, she's actually on a telephone with someone, like she's on hold with a company. And she asks everybody in the room if they have a pen and they all look at her and they say, no, we, we don't have a pen. And she said, why would you go to class without a pen? And that's the whole shtick at this college, this community college, nobody's really there to learn, right? Except for maybe a few people. Um, and so hopefully as we finish up, Mark, you've learned a good bit. I know I've learned a good bit. Um, as we get ready to turn to Malachi, um, hopefully we'll learn a good bit as well. And, and um, I was talking with uh, Pastor John Nicholas um, as I went through probably five books at Calvary Santa Fe. Um, and I have five notebooks on each of those. And it's really cool to go back and to be able to think about times of the year and seasons of life and where you were. Um, I know uh, John Piper talks about for most of his life, he's read through the McShane uh, Bible reading program, and he starts to think of his life based on, well, where, where would I be in that season of reading from McShane? Because it follows uh, through a calendar, and you're always in two Old Testament, two New Testament, and you read the Psalm and Proverbs twice. So when you start to do these kinds of things and take on these kinds of disciplines, even you're thinking about the historical facts of your life, when you look back, you start to see in biblical frameworks. What was I learning? What was God teaching me during that? 
Um, I know John was talking about a conversation with Steve Lawson, and there's a ton right now with pastors uh, uh, plagiarizing sermons and taking them from one another. And, and John asked uh, Pastor Lawson, you know, hey, you're going to teach today or later, later today or later this week from the Psalms. And I know you taught through the Psalms for like three years. Are you just going to use one of those that you studied for? And he said, no, I hope I've learned something since then. And that's such a, a great reminder that we're always growing in Christ. And so today, we're going to see in the book of Mark, we're going to see God doing amazing things with the people that showed up. And sometimes that's just half the battle, right? Showing up, being present. They, you know, they would say the old, the old football coach says, keep your legs moving. You're not going to advance any, any further unless your legs are moving or a ship. You can't turn a ship if it's standing still. So sometimes as Christians, just being encouraged to be in motion, right? doing the disciplines of the Christian life, reading from the Word. You know, we, we want to learn and we want to grow, and then we do nothing. We put no effort forth. We put no energy. We said that we could do all things that Christ through Christ who strengthens us. If He gives us strength, that means we apply it to the task. You know, you could be the strongest, strongest, strong man in the world, and if you never pick anything up, you'd never know it. And so what we see is God doing amazing things through people who show up. And so maybe you'll think, I, I want to see some amazing things. I want to be part of that. And then I would encourage you to show up. So by the end of today, we'll have been prompted in three different ways that we can show up as New Testament Christians, what we can do in the Christian life. There's all kinds of reasons for the ladies that we'll see in the story today not to show up. Jesus is dead, apparently. He's wrapped. He's already had some spices or anointing happening to his body, and we'll look at that a little more. He's behind this tombstone. He's guarded, but they didn't know that. But God went before them and made a way. Their only part was to show up. So let's look at the story through that lens. And we'll start in Mark chapter 16 and verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Not only when the Sabbath was passed, but really this is the last Sabbath. And we talked a little bit about that in Sunday school. What is the, what is the Sabbath? What is the Sabbath rest? Who is the Sabbath for? Why do we worship on Sunday as Christians? We're seeing really the final Sabbath here. And so the ladies go to anoint Jesus' body. Now we noted last week from Mark chapter 14 and verses 3 through 11, a scene of anointing. Because there's all kinds of things that are going on here. We see that um, Jesus' body was, uh, was anointed in, in Mark chapter 14. Jesus even points forward and says, she's preparing my body for burial. We'll read that in a moment. Uh, you also see that they seem to do some kind of an anointing. Uh, before they wrapped his body. And now that the Sabbath is over in the dawn, we see that these ladies come with the rest of the anointing. And there's all kinds of conversation about what happened. Maybe they put the dry anointing spices on and they came back with more anointing like aloe. Um, it said that Nicodemus had 75 to 100 pounds of things to anoint Jesus with. So look at Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 11. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, 
as he was reclining, reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment and pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And so here we are where the gospel is being proclaimed, remembering her who helped to prepare Jesus's body. Now, it's somewhat difficult to see in these scenes and, and read between the lines to understand what may have been happening, but we know that Joseph, a Sanhedrinist who was at Jesus's trial, probably one of the people voting on Jesus's guilt or innocence at this trial, goes and asks for his body and retrieves it. Now, we, we mentioned last week that it's not just anyone that could walk in and ask for the body of this tried criminal. This would have been a person of prominence, and now he's putting himself perhaps in a, in a dangerous place, revealing himself to be a disciple of Christ, or at least someone who cares about Christ. Because you're not going to ask for his body. What they could have just as easily done would be to pull the bodies of the, these criminals down and throw them into a common grave. We'll also see reference to his burial cloths across the rest of the Gospels. We see a little bit more. So it was Nicodemus we see on the scene here. And, and we see Nicodemus back in, in the book of John. Um, so there's a, a concept called the, the harmonizing the Gospels. So in, in John chapter 3, we'll look in a moment at Nicodemus. But the harmony of the Gospels, if you are a musical person as I am, um, you realize that harmonies work together to make something even better than it would have been with a, with a soloist. And so the Gospels, in that same way, harmonize the story. Getting different perspectives from different people tells a fuller account. I think so often people want to look for an error, and they see something mentioned in one Gospel that wasn't mentioned in the next, and we forget that that's exactly the way that we communicate with one another. Um, if, I, if I tell a scene of a room that I walked into and you tell a scene of the same room you walked into, maybe I see things differently than you do. Maybe you come in and you think of the height of the ceiling. Maybe I come in and I talk about the depth of the room. We're describing the same place. In John chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5, we read, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a good teacher. Come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can man be born when he is old. Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, 
Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus, with all of the class, I don't know how many of you have ever taught a 16-year-old to drive. Um, but this is kind of how I read Nicodemus here. You know, you, you try to correct a 16-year-old who's learning to drive and they already know the answer. You know, you tell them things like, hey, buddy, you're following a little too closely to this car, and they already know that they're not following too closely to the car, and you're just wrong. Or, hey, you should use your turn signal before you turn. They already know that they don't really need to use their turn signal because 16-year-olds know a lot better than you do everything that you think you know. And so Nicodemus is exercising this same kind of smart alicism when he says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? This is a, a wild mental image. This is not someone, this doesn't sound like someone who's convinced that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the God-man, that Jesus is the rightful king of all creation, that Jesus is God's active agent in creation. Yet something changed about Nicodemus because a few chapters later in the book of Mark, we see that he shows up to be a part of this burial. He shows up with the cloths, the clothing to wrap Jesus' body in. We see that these are elevated people in society. They're putting themselves, at least their position in society, at great risk. To be a Christian wasn't smiled upon. You weren't then welcomed into the rest of the, of the Jewish community. People weren't frequenting your business. People weren't uh, making sure that you were included in commerce. In fact, the opposite was true. You were ostracized. You were pushed out. We said that uh, Paul, on the, on the road to Damascus, he was on his way to go get the Jews who were following in the way of Christ to bring them back in chains so that they could be what? Probably killed? Stoned? We see him not having too much of a problem checking people's coats and giving them tickets while Stephen is going to be stoned. He wasn't just there, he was there in approval. If you flip forward to John chapter 7 and look at verses 48 through 52, we see more of a picture of Nicodemus. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. I think Nicodemus is a man in process. In John chapter 3, he's a bit of a smart mouth around the rebirth and the baptism. John chapter 7, he's in this scene where the temple guards and the chief priests and the Pharisees are all discussing maybe an unsuccessful capture attempt of Jesus. Is he transformed? Who knows? But I think we see differences later. Back to verse 2 of our text, Mark 16. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Now Mark, we said Mark is a, just this laser-focused author. 
right? How many times do we see he says, and immediately, immediately, immediately. He's all about the immediacy of getting to the story of the person of Christ, getting to this scene in the gospel. Now he's on to the resurrected body. No mention of some of the events that we see across the rest of the gospels, which help to, as we said, harmonize the story. No mention of a localized earthquake. Seemingly no telling of knowledge of Roman guards at the tomb of Christ. Just the ladies in the very early morning, perhaps in the pre-dawn, rushing to Jesus' body to anoint it. And only with that task in mind. Perhaps along the way they begin talking about the details. How are we going to pull this off? How are we going to move this stone? And then they look up and the stone is no longer blocking the tomb. They didn't know the plan, but they showed up. They knew what needed to be done. We know from Matthew's Gospel that the angel moved the stone. John gives us a bit of a looking glass into the events here in John chapter 20 and verses 5 through 10. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths laying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and saw the linen cloths lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. The disciples went back to their homes. And you know what? I'm going to say, this is fair. There's no category for this. It's fairly easy for us because we kind of get generally the trajectory where the story is going. Um, In the story of Lazarus, we have kind of some helpful parallels that I think help us understand what's happening in this scene. Um, In John chapter 11 and verse 44, we read, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound him with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. There's some foreshadowing here, like maybe when you when you watch a movie, you start to figure it out. You know, if it's one of those movies that has like twists and turns to the plot, and you start to maybe at some to some level into the movie, or if you're like Brianna, you're reading a blog in the background, you know, reading what's happening as the movie is going on, right? Because the internet's ruined everything, including movies and trivia night. This story of Lazarus is designed to bring our mind to this scene. Lazarus, the man who was a friend of Jesus, who Jesus loved. And he dies. In fact, I think the King James Version is actually very helpful here. And I referenced it last week. This is one of my favorite bits of scripture from the, from the King James Version. And um, we were talking about this at a Bible study last Monday night, actually. John chapter 11, verses 34 through 44 in, uh, in the King's English. Where have ye laid him? They said unto him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, behold, how he loved him. And some of them said, 
Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? Therefore, Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave and a stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh. That's the part I like. For he hath been dead for days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave cloths. And his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus said unto them, Loose him and let him go. So seeing the parallels between these stories, it's, it's purposeful. Now the King's English talks about a napkin. Okay, This is not like a bounty, quicker picker-upper, quilted napkin or a northern kind of picking up the spilled lemonade that your kids spilled on their table again because they don't put the lid back on the bottle when they're finished pouring it into a cup on Saturday, June 25th, 2021. It's our favorite thing to do is spill lemonade in my house. The napkin, the King's English, this is why the King's English can be so confusing. There's words we don't say like stinketh. It's talking about unicorns all over the Psalms and Job says stinketh, which makes us giggle. It doesn't know what to call a donkey. And it says napkin. This we'll see probably your, your text probably says face cloth. This is what we see. Lazarus comes out. He's, his body is animated because his Lord calls him forward, but is, is still kind of bound by all of these, all of these cloths. And the ladies are going to the tomb because you can imagine, right? Um, you can imagine a, a hewn-out hole in the side of a rock and a human body placed on that rock. It's, it is stinketh is fair. You know that you know that smell of decomposing body. You've had it happen before, like you, you have a mouse caught in your house or something like that, or um, something dies in the wall. It's it's no, nobody's confused about what's going on. So there's a there's a body. There's some flesh that's rotting somewhere. And so they're going to the tomb of Christ as soon as they can when the Sabbath is over. Right as the sun is dawning, they're already present with the rest of the spices, whether it's, whether it's to finish up with the aloe and the other spices, because what will happen is more bodies, presumably, would be placed inside this tomb. And if not that, two years later, they're going to come back when the flesh has all decomposed. They're going to take the bones and collect them up and put them in a box and put them in their final resting place. But none of this will happen because Jesus has command over death. It can't hold him. That's why we see that it has no sting. Even death can't hold him because the wages of sin is death. 
There's no death in Christ. Death has no hold on him. He gave his spirit over purposely so that it could be finished. He experienced even death on our behalf, all without ever sinning. I mean, does it, it should never escape you that Jesus experienced absolutely everything that we did, even birth. Allowing himself to be changed. I mean, some, some, it's just the, the far, further you go with it, the stranger it must have been. He even had siblings, right? That would have been the ultimate test. If Jesus didn't have siblings, it would have been a little easier to live life without sinning. And those of you with siblings know exactly what I'm talking about because you'll fight over anything. I mean, it really doesn't even matter who got red Kool-Aid, who, who got a blue toy. My, my kids were playing in the pool the other day with an object of trash. And there was a fight over the object of trash. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. And so they've got all of these traditions, these burying traditions, which to us are foreign, but we do the exact same thing. right? We care about the way that our loved ones' bodies are treated, their remains are treated. Does it matter? Eh, probably not, but we care because we care about them. So we want to bury them. We put them in final resting places. We go to great detail with the way that we bury our dead, in fact. I think I shared with you before, I used to do a Bible study with a guy who was a coroner at Hetrix Funeral Home, right, right down the road here. Um, and it always creeped me out, if I'm being honest, because I thought he was probably going to kill me one day. I really did. Like In the back of my mind, I was like, this guy's going to off me. He's weird. Who has this job that isn't weird? And his apartment was right above where they would prepare bodies. So I would go, there's a table, there's like a, a, a you know a silver table, and I, I made the mistake of asking him one time, oh, what's that? And he's like, oh, it's the embalming machine. And basically, you know, they hook it up to one side of your neck, they hook it up to the other side of the neck, they pump you up full of junk, and they pickle you from the inside out so that you don't at least look horrible when everybody parades by to look at your body. <laughs> well, you got just close the lid. Dump me in a hole. Let's not do all of the parading stuff. I don't want to be seen. I just want to be left alone. But I'm not here anyway, so who cares? And so in the same way, they have the things that they do, right? So maybe when you look at it in that light, it's not so odd that they're, 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 they're anointing his body. They're doing all these things. And this is Christ. This, these ladies, this is Lord Jesus. They know who he is. They're doing it. This is an act of worship. Verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Fair. <laughs> Fair. I, I can imagine the alarm. This is not the scene that you're expecting. You don't know what you're expecting, but this, this is not it. You expect to get there and have to figure out how are we going to open this tomb. You expect to get there and an inanimate body is dead because everyone watched him die right there on a cross in front of all of these people with a spear pressed into his side with blood and water coming out of his lungs from very experienced executioners. His body was taken down before the Passover. It was placed in a tomb, hastily wrapped up with some anointing happening, his body having been pre-anointed in Mark 14, placed on the shelf, and the ladies come back to, to finish this because they want their Lord's body well-preserved. And it makes sense. That's how we feel about our loved ones. We don't want them treated poorly. 
It's like when Dobby got stabbed in the middle of the heart, right? (laughs) He wanted Dobby to be well cared for, so he dug him a proper grave with his hands. Other Gospels, Luke and John, mention two angels. Mark perhaps just mentions the one who speaks. If you look at Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 7, we get a little bit more of the story. But on the first day of the week, that's a pretty accurate translation because we don't have, the Jews didn't have names of the days of the week. It was just a count up or a count down. A count up to Sabbath or a count back from the Sabbath. There's not a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And so we start getting confused when we take Western eyes and we start to understand, well, when did all of these events occur? They were more, they were less interested in being precise with these kinds of things. They were on a different calendar. We talked last, last week about it being lunar. And so there was all kinds of adjustments depending on what season you're in. I said, for, and that sounds weird. We're like, well, that's really imprecise. And then we just talk about leap year like it makes sense. So we round But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices that they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and they were frightened, and they bowed their faces to the ground. And the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? Now, if they had come upon this tomb and they saw a couple of guys in there with dazzling clothing... I'm thinking this, we're talking about the brightness of their clothing, right? They're not wearing like sweet uh, orange camo cheetah print vests and Air Jordan 1s. These are dazzling white clothes, almost like when you read about Moses who'd been in the presence of God, you read about the Shekinah glow. This is the kind of dazzling that we're talking about. And I've said before, if you look at this window here, the angel's clothing, when the sun is setting, is so bright. I mean, you can see that it's bright now, but when the sun sets at the end of the day, it's an intense kind of a bright color. These angels appear as they're in there. I don't think the ladies would have come up, seen a couple of dudes, and said, you know, just kind of giving them like the jeep wave and go look for a body. And then finally, when, when they see that there's no body, turn to them and say, oh, what's going on? And suddenly they become afraid. The angels either appeared or obscured themselves so they couldn't be seen. The ladies go in, they realize that Jesus is not there, and then the angels appear to them, and they become immediately terrified. They could tell that something's up with these angels. They're otherworldly kinds of beings. We see that all the time, always, when an angel is present. And so many times, the angels are having to tell people, hey, get up, don't offer worship, don't proskuneo, don't bow down to us, we're not God. But they could see that there's something different about them. Verse 6, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is, not, he is not here. See the place where they laid him. Do not be alarmed. Sounds too much like a, a reassurance. 
The, the word carries a little bit of a, of a different sense. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 33, it says, And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Greatly distressed is the word. The great distress that Jesus felt at the Olive Garden. Not the great distress that we feel at Olive Garden when we realize 90% of the tables are empty and they're still a 45-minute wait. But the great distress that Jesus felt knowing that the full wrath of God was going to fall on him for the sins of the elect. Amazed, alarmed, dumbfounded. Don't be that. Verse 7, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. You imagine leaving from this scene, walking through town, not going to have that goofy, casual conversation that you have when you bump into people. You know what I'm saying? Like if you're going to and fro, if you're going here and there, if you're walking through a mall or Strawberry Square and you happen to come so close to someone that you have to acknowledge that they're a person because you're not wearing headphones, and you say, hey, and they say, hey, back, what does this mean? I don't know, it's just what you do, right? Or you meet someone for the first time, hey, how are you doing? You don't care, right? But you'd be super bummed out if they were like, oh man, I'm so glad you asked. You'd be like, oh. <laughs> I, I was on a plane, uh, Thursday morning, and uh, no, 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 it was a train on, on, on Friday. And I, I sat down, and I was, I was doing the thing where you put your bag in the seat next to you so that somebody won't sit in it. Um, and the real defensive move is to sit in the aisle and put your bag by the window and put the tray down and put something on it so it looks like you're waiting for them to come in. Um, but anyway, I was laughing because behind me, I heard this lady say to this guy, she says, hey, can I sit here with you? I promise not to talk. <laughs> I was like, right, you're going to talk. They're not in that kind of a mood. They've just come into a tomb where they expected to see their Lord doing an act of effectively worship as they were going to prepare His body because they wanted Him to be well cared for. They didn't want Him to just lay on a rock, partially wrapped hastily. They want His body cared for. They want Him to be protected. They want Him to look nice. They don't want Him to stink it. It's worship. And so they come into the tomb, they're like, hey, how are we going to get this boulder out of the way? I was so ready to do this, I've been so stressed about this, that I didn't even think about it. And they get there and it's open and they say, oh my gosh, look at this. Maybe they thought the Lord prepared it for us. Maybe they thought we should figure out what's happening here. And so they go in very much expecting to find a very dead body and it's not there. And then some weird glowy dudes show up and they're terrified and they say, stop being dumbfounded. Go get the disciples and tell them. Just like he said. And so when they leave, they're not having idle chatter with everybody they pass. They're on a mission. We see in Matthew, these alarmed, amazed, dumbfounding ladies are to inform the disciples that Jesus is risen. And people have asked and pontificated, why announce this through the women? Why would the Lord see fit that the, that the ladies would receive this message? 
And I'm going to help with that and end it for the rest of time. The men weren't there. (laughs) They weren't present. They didn't show up. They were off doing whatever it is they wanted to do. Why didn't the Lord pronounce it to them? Why didn't God see fit that they would see it? They weren't there. Were they faithless? I don't know, but they weren't as faithful. And so sometimes still, guys, we can use that as a calling to be more faithful, to be more exemplary. You know, it's like uh, when there's a sound at the door at my house. I don't hide behind my wife and say, come on, mama, let's go see what that was. Right? I hide in the closet. (laughs) I'm just kidding. It's not that she can't protect herself. It's that I don't want her to have to. I'm commanded in Scripture to care for her as the weaker vessel. As the weaker vessel. Sacrificing myself. That's a picture. That's the the picture that God has given us to carry forward. To be providers. To care. And that even means, guys, to ladies that you're not married to. To be more gentle. And to teach your sons the same. And so God gives them opportunity to take this action. They sought for him even after his death. And before they knew it, they were off with this message. The Jesus who died isn't dead. So Peter is called out specifically. I love this. And there's some confusion here. And we should put this to bed as well. We saw in verse 7, but go tell his disciples and Peter. (laughs) This is not high praise for Peter. Okay, and this is not get the disciples and Peter who's more than a disciple. This is go get the disciples and Peter who's probably real bummed out because he messed up big. Peter who was so bold. Far be it from me, Lord, I'll die for you before I deny you. Jesus says, Pete, you're going to deny me before you die for me. Before the rooster crows, so many times you'll die. Or excuse me, you'll deny me. So go get the disciples. Make sure Peter comes. He's not going to be in the mood. It's not that he was a particularly great leader who was to carry on the church. It's that he needed to be rebuilt back up. He needed to be restored You see in Matthew 28, look, this would be a great one to jot down. Read over this this week. We Matthew 26, 31 through 35. Look at Luke 22, 31 through 38. And look at John 13, 31 through 38. And we'll be encouraged as we study the Scriptures, we'll be encouraged that, that we're showing up It's amazing, as you study the Scriptures, you read the Word, it it happens time and time and time again. And especially if you read the Word and you talk about it with someone, whether it's a discipleship relationship where they're specifically discipling you, or you are specifically discipling them, or it's a relationship of fellowship. Christian fellowship, it gets confused all the time. Christian fellowship isn't just Denny's. In fact, don't go to Denny's, it's gross. 
Christian fellowship isn't just getting together and having a state. It's not going out and having a drink together. It's engaging and talking about the Word of God. When you, when you get together and you have a joyful fellowship, at the center is God, at the center is Christ, at the center and present among you both is the Holy Spirit, and you'll talk about it. Oh, what if we get together and we talk about the eagles? Or worse, the Steelers. That's not fellowship. That's not biblical. That's not even Christian to talk about the Steelers. I mean, unless you think it's Christian to talk about the Steelers, you tell me. It's ungodly. It should be on the tip of our mind. Who is God? It should be exciting to us. The, the God that created the universe. I love the song that talks about him stretching it out like a cloak, just bending time and space. In fact, creating it. When Jeff Bezos went to space for like three seconds, right? And the other weird guy, Branson, he went to space for like two seconds. What time was it? Right? When you leave the Earth's atmosphere, when there's no rotation measurement between sun and Earth, what time is it? Time only exists for us. It's so that God can give us an expiration date. You look at the fall in the garden, God blocks them from being in the garden, effectively saying, hey, you're not going to be eternally in my presence like this anymore. Something has changed, fellowship is broken, and it's by His grace that we expire from broken fellowship. Death is hard. You know, we do weird stuff, we pump ourselves up full of chemicals. Like, who came up with that the first time, I want to know? Who's like, I, I have an idea. And somebody else is like, okay, let's hear it. So I want to take this vacuum cleaner. All right? We're going to run it in reverse. We're going to fill it up with the stuff I found called our formaldehyde. And we're going to dump the blood out one side, put formaldehyde in the other. And so God gives us death. And it's a great blessing. Death is a great blessing. I mean, just imagine. Imagine yourself at full and complete peace with God. And however you die, I pray for you, it's the way that I'm going to die, which is in my sleep, unaware of it, and no pain. I hope that's true for you too. I know it's going to be true for me. In one moment, you blink your last, you're present with God. Isn't that wonderful? Perfect peace with God. It's by His grace that we expire. Even death is a gift. To pass on from this life to be present with Him is an absolute gift if you're found in Christ. That's the good news. To pass on from this life to expire, the wages of sin is death. Without the blood, there's no remission, there's no payment, there's no forgiveness of sin because sin is significant. Sin isn't just saying a potty word watching too many episodes of Community and wasting your time and your life. Sin is what's already a part of us. It's not that we fall into sin and God, you know, like you ever watch somebody kind of bobble with something or uh, like I like to watch videos of people walking on the ice. Right? It's kind of fun to watch their legs like flip out all over the place. Sin's not that we mess up. Sin is what we are. We're separated from God like oil and water. It's His perfect character. We can't uphold His character perfectly. We can't contain it. We can't hold it. Even in the garden, original creation with almost no outside influence except for one is willing to deny that God's Word is true, that God's Word is faithful, that God's character cares for them. 
Just one little ask. But did God really say? Yeah, he really did. Matthew 26, 33 through 35. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. <laughs> now, not only are you going to deny me, you're going to do it three times. Not only are you going to deny me, not only are you going to deny me three times, you're going to do it tonight. And not only are you going to deny me and then deny me three times and then deny me tonight, but I'm going to give you an audible signal that says, you just did it. How crushing. Except that Jesus restores him. The angel specifically says, get Peter, he's in a really bad place right now. And I love him. And I'm going to build him back up. Because it was never about Peter and it was never about his performance. Not one time. In fact, I told him, Peter, you're going to deny me. Far be it from me. You ever find yourself in that place, cruising? Like, man, I'm just killing it right now. Model Christian. People should like follow me. I need like an e-Hollywood documentary being written about me, perfect Christian. Proverbs talks about that. It's called pride. It says, before a fall comes pride. So even Peter, the spokesman, is gone. All of his bold words, hollow actions, the faithful ladies are present, and God is using those who show up. Even in death, Jesus was sought after by his followers, by the faithful. Even though death had no hold, his resurrection came despite death, despite guards, despite a physical obstacle, transcending all of the effort of the lesser government. The true king was almost ready to take his place at the Father's right hand, but not before leaving a myriad of witnesses. Not before encouraging and restoring his unfaithful disciples. In a sense, perhaps you could say that Nicodemus maybe missed out on Jesus in this unique life opportunity. Rather than falling into smart alicism and joking and keeping Jesus at a distance and staying where he was in society, he could have experienced even more of Jesus. But the same is true for us. Even though we don't have Jesus physically present, we have the Holy Spirit of God in us, and we can decide to what degree we'll follow, to what degree we desire obedience over indulgence. 
And so here's three ways that we, as New Testament believers, can keep showing up. It's, it's so painfully easy. And I'll tell you the truth, it's so painfully difficult. And, and these are three things that feel so simple, but sometimes are so hard. And they're the first things that leave in your life. Oftentimes, people pull back and withdraw from fellowship. And we'll do it sometimes for really great-sounding reasons. We'll do it sometimes because we're tired. We'll do it sometimes because we're just not feeling it, and it's the worst thing for us. Because as our fellow believers get to know us, they'll see a difference in us. They'll say, dude, are you doing okay? You seem whatever. Like for Pastor John Nicholas, they'll say, you seem particularly nice. Are you covering something up? That's different. For me, maybe they'll say, John, you're a little edgy and sometimes you're rude. Are you okay? You're not actually like that. We need that. We need, as believers, we need to help keep each other accountable. I don't mean some list of rules that we have to follow. I mean, we're all imitating each other as we follow after Christ as one body, glorifying God as we live together. A bunch of fallen people. None of us venerated above the others. None of us existing on a pedestal. None of us pretending to be sinless. I'm not. I hope you aren't pretending to be sinless. I struggle mightily. We could sit down for hours. I'll tell you all the ways I wish I was more like Jesus. And so we need one another to be an encouragement. Because sometimes I'm struggling in an area where you're not. And I'm not afraid of you. Because I know you love me and you care about me. And I know that when I come to you and I talk about this, you're not going to be like, oh, gross, nasty. And you're mean to people. I'm not mean to people. You should get better. I know I'm going to come to you and I'm going to share with you where I'm struggling. And you're going to say, I get it. Let's pray. You're going to be like, I struggle with that. Or maybe you say, I don't struggle with that. But here is what scripture has to say about it. Don't believe the lie that in order to help someone else, you have to have struggled in the same area. Uh, that's a dangerous rhetoric. All we need for life and godliness, for reproof, for doctrine, and for correction is the Word of God. And that should be one of the first things that we turn to is prayer and the Word. If you go to somebody and they have great advice for you all the time and it's out of their head, run. Sprint from that person. If they're proclaiming to be a believer and their advice is always about their good ideas, run from that. And so here's the easiest and hardest list ever of three items that keeps you showing up. Number one, read your Bible. You knew that was coming though, right? Maybe for you it's automatic. Maybe for you it's automatic and you want to do it. Maybe for you, it's discipline. Maybe for you, you don't want to do it. All of those things are actually okay. What's not okay is to use any of those as an excuse to shirk away. Discipline is okay, right? I mean, we, we can't live this life where we pretend that we just do what Napoleon Dynamite says, which is follow my heart. You want to follow after Napoleon Dynamite? Go ahead, follow after your heart. See where that lands you. Scripture says that that heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who should know it? Meaning you can't even understand the places that that heart is going to take you 
It's going to be weird, I promise you that. It's going to be bad for you in the end because it distances you. Are you reading your Bible? It's okay to rely on discipline to read your Bible. If you're one of those who's not into it, discipline yourself. I know you want to just kind of float and have the desire, God, make me want to read your word. And then you go off and you pull down Twitter. You know, you go off and you watch Community. Uh, you go off and you see what somebody else said on Facebook today. Who cares? Maybe delete Facebook for a little bit and carve out some time. People tell me all the time, oh, but I'm too busy. Oh, man. I, yeah. What gets under my skin more than I'm too busy? Almost nothing in this world gets under my skin more than I'm too busy. Because it's not true. You just don't prioritize. Because I'll tell you what priority looks like in my life. John, I shot you a text, but I didn't hear back. Uh, yeah, because it's my phone. <laughs> I, I don't have to answer it all the time. You know what my life would be like if I answered my phone every time a message came in? I've got like five email addresses, and they're getting pounded. Already this morning, man, I got up, I sit down with my Bible. I'm an idiot, so I open my phone, I look at my Facebook, and some people in Israel are already up working. I've got emails of things that need to be done right now, and all of a sudden my mind is in work mode. I'm going to go take care of all of those things. I'm, I'm ready to put this down for work. It's all about manage your time. Take control of your life. Stop being a victim. If something needs to die, kill it. If something makes it so that you can't worship God, murder that from your life. If your job doesn't let you be a Christian, quit. Dig ditches. Work in an office. I... Work at Starbucks. We're going to drive through at Wendy's. I don't understand how so many things happen on Sunday anymore. Right? The one day, the one morning that I've carved out in my life to worship a sovereign creator of the universe. And the number of things that could get in the way of that is preposterous. Now I'm hitting you as I'm hitting me. There's things that sometimes I'm like... But I carve out time specifically for this. Because it's for me. It's for the people that I also care about who were gathered together. And it gives a tangible evidence to a watching world that our God is so important. His people gather on this day of the week and they ignore all of these other things that they could be doing because He's worthy. Number two, are you praying? This is different for different people. For some people... Prayer is automatic. You are a machine. And I love you and I appreciate you for that. Simon Peter, Satan has asked that he could sift you like wheat, but take heart. I've prayed for you. Jesus encourages people to take heart. I'm praying for you. Sometimes we'll say, I'm praying for you. No, you're not. You lie. <laughs> you haven't thought about me in months. So this is what you say. It's like, how are you doing? Oh, actually, ooh, in a rush. <laughs> pray for people. Pray for each other. Pray for yourself. The Lord models what our prayer should look like. I remember being so confused when I was a kid. My grandfather, who was just a hero to me, in, indestructible, who died of cancer, but worked into his last days. Man was a machine. And he used to sit down at lunch every day, come home from lunch, no matter what was happening. Came out of the field, driving a tractor up the road at like a half a mile an hour for what seemed like 12 miles. I'm like, wouldn't it be better if we just kept working? 
nope, we're going to go to lunch. You're going to sit down with Mama. We sit down at the supper table, because every meal apparently is supper. Still don't know how that works. And he would always pray, Lord, forgive me of my many sins. I never got that. This man's a hero. He doesn't have many sins. What he had was a healthy view of God and prayer. And then finally, number three, after reading and after praying, are you in fellowship with believers? Keep showing up. Fellowship with believers. I mean regular fellowship. Because I'll tell you, I've seen this time and time again. Oh, hey, I'm, it always comes down to busyness because we're important. Oh, hey, I'm busy. I'm not able to meet during that. And, and, and don't hear me beating on you, okay? Um, I know there are real things. There are things we have to do. There are times when our Bible reading wanes. There's times when our prayer life wanes. I'm not saying be a legalist. I'm just saying look for this as a, as a pattern. Look for this as a discipline. Appreciate who God is because when you excuse that and you allow it to drift, you don't drift in good places. Right? I remember when I was a kid and I was learning to drive and my mom was telling me one time, like, if you see headlights coming and they're like blinding, don't stare at them. Look at the white line. Great advice. Because if you notice that, what you're looking at tends to be where the vehicle coasts. And so if we keep God in our mind, if we keep God in our midst, if we keep God in front of us, rather than everything else that the world screams at us with, we'll keep a shorter account with sin. Because when He's before us, we'll remember that He's holy and that He's good and that these things aren't good for us. When we push Him away because we're not in prayer and we're not praying and we're not in fellowship, we go bad places. We drift towards the ditch. We love the ditch. And I want everybody to do, if you don't have Jim's phone number, Jim's about to hate me, call him this week. But Jim, don't answer your phone. Jesus wept at Lazarus' death. Why? J.D., why? For the people that don't know him, right? That's your voicemail. (laughs) Jesus wept for those that don't know him. They didn't understand what was about to happen. Jesus overcome with emotion. Lazarus is dead. That's sad. He's about to resurrect him. He's sad because people don't understand the power of God. People don't understand that God desires to know them, to have them in fellowship. So he weeps. Jesus has full and complete command over death. And we see that here. So I read in 2 Corinthians, and I'll close with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. God works through that. And more than that, God calls us to it, to keep showing up, because He's worthy and He's worth it. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your great news that is Your gospel, that though we are all found dead in our sin and trespass, God, in spite of that, that none of us seeks after You, not even one, You in your great mercy and love, restore us. And even when we think we're gone like Peter, 
You still have us in your grasp. No one can lose us. Not anything in creation 